1: This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Monday, and welcome to another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, this is not Al. Uh, he was a little under the weather on Friday, and unfortunately that has progressed into a more of a chest cold, It's just that kind of time of the year. Uh, so we'll be talking about some other things on today's program. And uh, we'll kick it off in this hour with Michael Therrien, explaining the Catholic faith for the new evangelization. Uh, we've certainly all seen the numbers, uh, the rate of people leaving the church. For every convert into the Catholic church, more than seven leave, according to a couple of studies. Millions of people who have left are still looking for meaning. But if the culture and even their own experiences as positioned Christianity is irrelevant, then our efforts to reach them will be fruitless. So how do you preach the gospel to somebody who has discounted the message entirely? We've talked about this before with Father John Ricardo and others, and today we're exploring it with uh, Michael Therian this idea of effective evangelization. Uh, Michael is president and CEO of the Perambula Group, a lay apostolate serving the work of the new evangelization in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. And uh, he served as president of the Institute for Pastoral Leadership in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, as well as director of evangelization. And prior to this, he was a professor of moral theology at the Augustine Institute in Denver. And you can learn more at perambula.org. We'll, of course, have that linked at our website. Uh, Coming up in the next hour... We'll talk more social science, apologetics, looking back on a conversation with Dr. Greg Popcheck. How does religion impact child development? It's a study from the University of Texas, San Antonio, suggesting that growing up in a religious household can be a mixed blessing. This study found that children who were raised in religious families tend to have enhanced social and psychological skills, but they may may perform less well academically compared to their non-religious peers. And uh, Dr. Rary Popchuk joining us with more. You know him well. He's the director of the Pastoral Solutions Institute, a group of pastoral telecounseling practice providing Catholic integrated marriage, family, and individual counseling services to Catholics around the world. Together, he and his wife Lisa host More to Life every morning on Ave Maria Radio and EWTN and are the author of more than 20 books. And they also have launched the Catholic HOM, Catholic Home app, created to help build strong, faithful families. They're coming up later in this program. All of that and more after this news break.
3: Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 8th. It's the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Pope Francis is calling for a ban on surrogacy. In prepared remarks today, he described the practice of surrogate motherhood as deplorable. He said a child should not be turned into an object of trafficking and that he considers the practice a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child. Over 40 states are under wind, snow, blizzard, or flood alerts as winter storms move across the country. Nine states in the Plains and the West are under blizzard warnings today. Tonight into tomorrow, the snow will start to impact Chicago, Milwaukee, and Wisconsin. Former President Trump is seeking to have his Georgia election subversion case dismissed. Trump's legal team today asked the Fulton County judge to toss the case, arguing Trump's protected from persecution under presidential immunity. They say Trump was working in his official capacity as president when he allegedly tried to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. And a new college football national champion will be crowned in Houston tonight. The Michigan Wolverines are set to face the Washington Huskies in the college football playoff national championship game at NRG Stadium. Michigan enters fresh off a 27-20 takedown of Alabama on the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day. And Washington is coming off a 37-31 victory over Texas in the Sugar Bowl. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
4: I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Michael Terrian, is President and CEO of Preambula Group, it's a lay apostolate, serving the work of the New Evangelization in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. Michael, good to have you here again, thanks. Hey, thanks Al, it's good to be with you again. Something that is going to be going on for a long time to come is the awakening of the Catholic laity to their responsibility for the Church. How did the work of the laity, uh, as co-responsible for the Church, first begin dawning on you?
5: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, if I go back into my, my high school and college years, I, I wasn't aware of how significant was my experience of being engaged and pulled into the work of ministry in the Church. I kind of felt like, well, that's just always the way it's been. It never even occurred to me that in the you know mid-80s, uh, late 80s, that there was something actually very unique about that. It wasn't until later, as I began to study these things more, that I started realizing, especially as I studied the documents of Vatican II, and started realizing that the role of the laity is so critical to the sanctification of the world. Yeah, And that's so much of the history of the past hundred years or so really revolved around um, a tr- massive change that was taking place in society where the role of the laity was just going to be ever-increasingly important as leaven in society to continue to help build the kingdom of God.
4: Do you have any thoughts on why it was so long in coming? Yeah, I... You know, I
5: really believe that for especially in the post-Reformation Church in the post—you know—the post-Tridentine period, you would we mm-hmm. would call it. Yeah. There was a tremendous amount of reliance upon the institutional witness and strength of the Catholic Church, which was largely run by—well, not entirely run by clergy and yeah. religious. Yeah. And so, and then there was also on a pastoral level. The, the way that faith was distilled down to the laity was largely in terms of moral precepts and practices of piety, all good things. But the idea of the average layperson going out into the world and evangelizing was foreign because most Catholics were living in a predominantly Catholic culture. Mm-hmm. So as secularism began to emerge more and more aggressively in the 1800s and into the 1900s, it it just became evident that something needed to change, but I think we were so accustomed to relying on the strength of our institutions. And it really wasn't until the middle of the 20th century, you know, the 1960s and 70s, that those institutions began to fall in hard times. Mm -hmm. So it's taken time for us to change our ways of being and to provide the kind of formation necessary to the lady to actually fulfill this, this mandate.
4: Yeah. Do you know uh, how many? Uh, what the ratio is between those who are leaving uh, the Catholic faith and those who are converting or coming into full communion?
5: Well, I've I've seen the statistic that uh, for every one that comes in, seven leave. Okay. The second one is that of those who come into the church through the RCA program as adults as many as 70% in some places are not going to Mass on a regular basis oh. a year later. Yeah. And in my, in my uh, experience, the number one cause behind that is that the people of God that are coming up through the sacraments are not being formed and evangelized adequately. They're being catechized, but catechesis without evangelization is like one-sided Velcro uh we're we're pushing out you know information and and knowledge, but there isn't a receptacle to receive that yet so the yes. work of evangelization and the new evangelization is so critical for the laity because you have to prepare the heart first to receive the gospel before people are going to have a desire to understand what it is that they' come to experience sure. an, an encounter with Christ.
4: Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I'll ask you just some basic questions, which uh, you know, sometimes we take for granted. What is the gospel?
5: Well, the gospel is the, the great news, the good news, that God has come and visited his people and has solved for us this problem of sin and evil that we are burdened with. And that solution or that healing that we've received is through Jesus Christ and faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. So uh, the gospel is really the announcement that something wonderful has been done for us uh, through Jesus Christ. And once we come to know him we begin to feel and experience the effects of that great gift of salvation.
4: you make a distinction in a, uh, an essay that you wrote, How Jesus Made Disciples. You distinguish between two ways we can understand how Jesus engaged the people he encountered throughout his earthly ministry. Um, and the difference you draw is a transactional relationship and a transformational relationship. Uh, what are you getting at? Yeah. Well, I
5: think a lot of times when we think about the s- salvation, we think about it as a transaction. So if, if I acknowledge, you know, God in my life and I and I can I uh go through the process of receiving a sacrament, for example. If I do that part, then I get something in return, which is I receive grace which takes care of some of my problems. And that that's true. Like There is a transaction. We would never deny it. We call it the great exchange, in fact, Mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. Jesus becoming uh, human so that we could participate in His divinity and and His divine glory. But the Gospel is, I think, better understood as a transformational process. So through the experience of coming into relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, hope, and charity, Jesus creates the conditions for something new to emerge in our life, which is a new creation. That's us transformed in Him, and that transformation process doesn't happen overnight. Um, A transformational process requires inputs, which we also want to we want to see lead to certain outputs. But there's a throughput between the inputs and the outputs. That is, there's a process of growth and development that has to happen so that we're really transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so that process can only happen when we fully enter into that relationship with with the Holy Trinity, Mm -hmm. and we allow God to enter into the interior life and begin to really sort and transform everything that's going on inside of us from a kind of messed up, dysfunctional, broken, wounded person to someone who's been truly renewed in christ and so that's really what i'm getting at is that it's just, it's right it's correct to say that there's a transaction but we really don't get at the mystery of our salvation when we think of it only in those terms
4: hmm. our life project is conformity to christ right i mean that's what we are called to be and uh you can't really uh, be conformed to christ without encountering him um, the word disciples. And, and also remaining Go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. in Relationship.
5: Yeah. Also, I'm sorry. Also, just remaining in relationship with yes. them. Yes. So it's yes. It's ongoing. Like it's a daily, uh, it's a daily encounter. It's it's a deepening friendship in the Lord that that you know that transformation takes time. It doesn't happen instantly.
4: Yeah. Now, t- tell me uh, specifically what you're doing in your work there at uh, Preambula to Uh, incorporate those insights into parish life?
5: Yeah, so, you know, modeled on Jesus' own approach to evangelization, whereby he, on the one hand, proclaimed the kingdom of God to the masses. And in that experience, we see in the Gospels that some people responded to that. And then started hanging around him, <laughs> and then as they hung around him, he called them into a deeper relationship, so that he could really invest in them and form them deeply. Mm-hmm. So, kind of modeled on that, we're trying to do kind of those two things. We, we wanna we wanna message, you know, gospel messages to people in a way that they can receive them given where they might be in a secular, post-modern, post-Christian type of setting. So a lot of people, you know, I, I, they don't even comprehend what we're talking about when we talk about certain issues. And so I think that often we start the conversation way too far down the road. So we need to meet people really where they're at. We hear that, it's very trite, but there's a skill and an art to that. So we want to we wanna be able to message large groups of people in that way. But we also have created some formation programs to really invest in a, in a much smaller number of people um, to be able to help them uh, get the formation and the equip- equipping they need to really be able to go out into the world as missionary disciples. And we, we talk about this as being missionaries out in the third spaces of our culture. The third spaces are those places where people congregate and hang out by their own choice, whether it's a coffee shop, a gym, the side of a soccer field. We, we, I, my experience is that Catholics want to be part of the new evangelization. They want to be part of evangelization, but they really don't feel confident to do that. They don't know how because we're not accustomed to that. So we have to create a culture of missionary discipleship within our parishes, and help our people feel comfortable and confident crossing those thresholds of discomfort into the culture, where they can begin witnessing and being a bridge to Christ for people who are unaffiliated, unchurched, uncomfortable, maybe even angry with their with the church, uh, or or operating with lots of misperceptions about what Christianity is all about.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So you would think that many Catholics, if not the majority of Catholics, don't feel confident even really starting a conversation or, you know, asking leading questions or trying to engage somebody uh, in just spiritual back and forth.
5: Yes. In fact, I think, you know, in my pretty vast experience of speaking and being out in parishes and speaking to your average Christianer, you bring up the term evangelization, and people want to crawl under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> They're just uncomfortable. It's like, that's a Protestant thing, or that means I have to tell other people, like, how to think, or, you know, and so what I try to convey to people is, no, it's it's really coming alongside people, and and sharing life stories, and trying to help people discern where God is showing up yeah. in their life and and begin to be a, a like a spiritual resource to another person and a support to them as opposed okay. to someone who's standing in opposition and hold
4: there michael will come back and continue the conversation it's time for family
0: man with dr gregory popcha
6: saint john bosco taught his followers that it wasn't enough to stop their students bad behavior good discipline teaches children to want to make choices that please the lord If your child is behaving badly, chances are they either don't know how to meet a particular need appropriately, or they don't know how to apply the lessons you've taught them to a new challenging situation. To practice good discipleship discipline, take a moment to find out what your child was trying to do by acting that way. Then teach them healthier, godlier ways to meet that need. Taking this approach will help your kids know that they can count on you to help them be their best when they're feeling and acting their worst. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can
7: enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com.
8: What is prayer? The Catholic Catechism defines prayer simply as the raising of our mind and heart to God. Humility is the foundation of prayer. When we pray, do we speak from the height of our mind and will or from the depths of a humble and contrite heart? It is only when we acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought are we then ready to receive the gift of prayer. St. Augustine points out that when we come to the well seeking water, Christ comes to meet us. He first seeks us and asks for a drink. His asking arises from God's desire for us. God's thirst encounters our thirst. He thirsts that we may thirst for Him. Where does prayer come from? Scripture most frequently cites the heart. If the heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn
7: Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I Can't Get No Satisfaction is a popular song, but it could be a summary of our life on earth. In the book of Genesis, we hear that we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means that we can know the truth and we can choose to do good to others. We can love. It comes to fulfillment in the Sermon on the Mount where we hear these beatitudes. It's the standard of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that if we hear what he says and do what he tells us to do, We will be like wise people who build our house on solid rock. But we make progress towards happiness and blessedness by our actions, and it starts with our interior disposition, what we want to choose. Do you and I hunger and thirst for those things that will lead us to happiness and to God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied.
9: For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com.
3: Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877 Life US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
1: The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life, in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit streetevangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real life evangelization. <laughs>
4: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Talking about the work of evangelization, sharing the Gospel, um, really giving to others what has been most precious to us, and uh, trying to address as concretely as possible some of the barriers, the discomfort that uh, we all feel from time to time in uh, sharing uh, faith in Christ. Uh, my guest michael terrien uh, is the author of an outstanding book called the catholic faith explained and he's also president and ceo of the preambulate group it's a lay apostolate serving uh, the new evangelization in the diocese of pittsburgh michael before we went to the break we're talking about um, again me- meeting people where they are but in uh, and, and what that means and how to reduce the level of discomfort uh, is it do you think people the reason uh, people are uncomfortable sharing uh, with the thought of sharing the gospel is because they imagine that what they're giving somebody is an unwelcome message in other words it's not good news you are got to give them bad news not good news you're going to give them some new thing they've got to believe uh, or bad things are going to happen to them but uh, you think it's, people just yeah. don't think I mean, the good I news think, is good? <laughs> yeah. yeah,
5: yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it might come off as though it's just a, another set of expectations that right. I have to conform to. And, right. of course, our environment today is very resistant to that. Uh, the other thing I think plays into it is people don't want to feel as though or be perceived as though they are judging other people. Right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because sometimes the way in which we've gone about evangelization is, is in more of an apologetic mode, where we try to tackle or take on issues where, as Catholics, we may profoundly disagree with the culture. And I always like to say that legislation isn't a lead strategy, <laughs> um Jesus did not deal with people in on those terms at the at the right. onset of his relationship yep. with them. Right. That came later. He didn't avoid it, but he he really wanted to reach into the heart of people's misery and suffering and let them know that they were not alone and that they were not held in contempt by God but that in fact God desires very much to redeem them and restore them to the fullness of light. And so I think that when we as Catholics look at our role as evangelists in that way, uh, where it's like how can we be those who, who enter into those places of suffering and hardship that others won't go to? Because we have good news, we have light. Uh, to bring to dark places in people's souls, not as a judge, but as someone who wants to lift others up. And then as people experience healing in their life and encounter the Lord in a profound way, then they can begin to deal with the conditions of a covenant relationship with God, which is what we call law. But Mm -hmm. that's something we have to deal with later once people build some trust and some confidence that someone really does, in fact, care about them, God really cares about them.
4: Um, do you think that part of the problem here is that we aren't, we don't really, we're not around suffering people? Um, we tend to avoid them. Uh, we don't go out of our way uh, to be with people in hardship. And, and most Catholics avoid, deliberately, um, especially if you're a parent, you avoid immoral people. In other words, we don't keep very bad company. <laughs> we don't keep very needy company. <laughs> yeah.
5: Uh, yeah, I think there is definitely some truth to that. Although I think it also depends upon who we're talking about, because I can think of parishes, for example, in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, lots of them, that are surrounded by people that are yeah. really suffering and struggling, yeah. including my own. I mean... Um, but we tend to keep to ourselves, that is, those inside the parish. But even within those inside the parish, I think if we open our eyes up, you know, in our culture today, it's very easy to pretend like everything is fine. Even if we're not suffering on a material level, we may be suffering in spiritual ways that are quite profound, but we're so afraid to open up and be vulnerable to, to another person. And so, you know, we put our our show on our pretenses of having it all put together. We're very good at that as Americans. But I think that a a
4: disciple will
5: have their eyes and heart more attuned to where people, in fact, are not holding it together.
4: We have a convention, uh, a linguistic convention in our society. We see somebody, we say, how are you? Right? And most of us don't really expect the other person to stop and give us a, a real answer to that. (laughs) we're all trained to say I'm fine I'm doing fine and so Mm -hmm. um, we have to find those moments where that question can be asked it seems to me in a meaningful way so how are you doing? how how, how are things going in your life? I think of Jesus and the woman at the well which is one of my favorite uh, gospel stories uh, because Jesus starts that encounter with her off by Showing his own need, he's thirsty. He wants some water. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's something we should keep in mind. Maybe we should be the the needy one in these relationships, at least uh, you know at the beginning.
5: Yeah, I mean, in the least, to be vulnerable to yeah. to uh, yeah. communicate to others that it's I'm I'm a safe person to be vulnerable with. Right, I can be vulnerable with you. But the other, I think the other piece of it too, like a lot of times. When people say, "Oh, I'm fine," I always usually I always ask, "Well, is that a good fine or a bad fine?" Like I usually ask a follow-up <laughs> question. To, yeah, to, to, that's good. To upset the the the, 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 uh, the habitual nature of that. Like it's just like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm fine." It's yeah. like, "Well, are you really fine?" I'm really asking. Like I really want to know how you are, and then I've even gone so far with strangers of asking questions like when they open up, sometimes people will just really, you know, they'll back up and dump their freight on you. (laughs) And and I'll say, well, where is God in this for you? Right. And sometimes people are like, I don't know, or I don't think God is there. And usually, you know, I, I might say, well, either I've done this before, let's pray about it, or I will pray for you. And then, like, I had an exchange recently with someone who was a stranger. It's a long story, but I had texted back and forth through, um, I had sold something on uh, Craigslist, mm-hmm. and I got back in touch with this person for uh, a particular reason, and he told me his father was was dying, and uh, and so meeting up with me was going to be difficult because I needed something from him, and he, you know, I said, well, I I will be praying for him, so about a week later, I checked up on him. Yeah, how was your dad doing? You know. So I saw that as an opportunity to reach out and to let him know that a I, I believe in God and I think God matters in moments like this, and I want you to know that I'm with you in this experience, even though I don't even know you at all. And he was very appreciative of that. And I think there are so many little ways that we as Christians could witness to the gospel. Yep, uh, I by agree. Reaching out to people. Yeah.
4: I agree. We should just be a little more intentional about this. Rare, rare is the occasion. When the person says, "You know, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you," I mean, most people will accept your inquiry in a loving as an expression of your concern, not as an not as, as an attempt, uh, some sort of existential imperialism, you know, where you're trying to get control of their life. So I think
5: uh, right or or being yeah. overly moralistic, you know, sort of yeah. establishing a standard or a metric of acceptability. Again, you know, you think of the G- Jesus's encounter with a woman caught in adultery. The way he handled that situation, he didn't sidestep the law, but he also didn't he didn't encounter her with the law. That's he, right. In fact, marginalized those who wanted to d- deal deal with her in that way, and instead invited her into covenant relationship with himself, which is where. The full effect of the law would become medicine for her soul, and that's you know that is in relationship with him loving her and helping her get out of that lifestyle. That's the way Christians have to be, you know, yeah. in our in our mindset towards others.
4: I used to I used to go down uh, to the Cass Corridor in Detroit and do street evangelism on Saturdays, uh, and I used to bring members of the congregation with me, and uh, the. The corridor was filled with addicts. It's really a kind of a catch basin for the indigent, the needy, the poor, uh, the prostitute. And time and again, you would uh, share the gospel with people. Start by saying, "How are you? Um, you know, what are you doing here? You know, you enjoying the day? All kinds of you know ways to start a conversation. And I can't tell you how many people I talked to there, they already had heard some version of the gospel, and they also knew, prostitutes knew, that what they were doing was immoral. You didn't have to preach to them that they were engaged in immoral activity. Uh, they were there for other reasons than their own morality usually had to do with economics. Um, right, and I, I, it's, it's many it's not as though people don't know roughly speaking where' the Christian where Christianity stands on some of these major issues. They know and for one reason or other mm-hmm. they just haven't come into compliance with it right they, you know they may not believe it they, right. they, and may, that's... they may be weak Who, I mean there are lots of reasons why I mean there are reasons I don't bring my life into full compliance at times. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable to temptation, and so I'm not always the person that uh, the Lord wishes me to be. And I know if that's true with me, it's got to be true with everybody.
5: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, our nature is very deeply wounded, and I think that you know Christianity was called a way, yeah, you know, or I love the that. way, precisely because. Uh, it it it's first and foremost a way out <laughs> of mm-hmm. the the prison sentence that sin is uh and the and the you know the and it's it's a way to everlasting life to true fullness of life and happiness and as christian disciples who are practitioners of the way that is we're trying to learn this way, we don't have to be perfect to lead others we just have to be willing to walk with others along the right. way. That's the beauty of it, is that the, the faith of the church wasn't built on the perfection of Mary's faith, but on the the, the uh, shaky instability of Peter's. <laughs> so <laughs> we can rejoice in the fact that we don't have to be perfect yeah. to disciple other people and to evangelize them and bring them along. We just have Very to good. show them that there is a way. Yeah.
4: Can you stay with me in another segment, Michael? Yes. Yeah. Very good. My guest, Michael Tyrion, talking about sharing our faith.
0: Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
9: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? Even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity Health Share, a faith-based health-sharing community, plus, Solidarity Health Share can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families.
6: Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
3: He was a doctor of the church and one
10: of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he
2: balanced his genius with humility. Once declared, it was pride that changed angels
1: into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com.
10: Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
4: Dr. Ray Garendi.
10: What's looking back at you at age 22.
2: What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would
0: you rather say he's one in a 100, morals, compassion, seeks God? Are you prepared to be a one in a 100 parent then? You can't parent like the
2: bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as
0: to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent.
11: Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, Aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, the, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I see, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith. I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform, and we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different, but every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we may be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words.
8: Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio.
4: And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Michael Tyrion. He is uh, author of The Catholic Faith Explained, and he's also president and CEO of Preambula Group. It's a lay apostolate that's working in the field of new evangelization for the Diocese of Pittsburgh. And we've been talking about that. We're talking about the some of the discomfort that people feel when they hear the word evangelization, um, misunderstandings of it, asking, well, what's good about the good news? And, um, you know, Michael, I'm, I'm wondering if you had, um, I mean, do you have a, you know, a, a mnemonic or, or some list of attributes that you would say make up Jesus' method of evangelizing? Did he have a, you know? If you were to frame his model, what are the principles that you would say Jesus used to share good news? Yeah.
5: Well, I have a couple of them. I think my favorite is that he he encountered people, called them, formed them, and then sent them.
4: Hmm. That's good.
5: So, you know, so he he first establishes a relationship with them but then he definitely calls them to follow him along the road of, of, of discipleship, the path of discipleship. But then he forms them very deeply. He spent the vast majority of his earthly ministry investing his time in the apostles. And then, but then he sends them out to replicate and imitate him and his method in the world. So we do well, I think, to study and to reflect on what he does because it worked <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really <yeah>. powerfully, <laughs> and uh, it will work for us too um, if we if we really try to be faithful to that method. But the other thing I would say too yes. is that his lead strategy was always to show mercy and to try to release captives yeah. from what afflicts them.
4: Yes, that's and very good.
5: From there, he he would then. Uh, help people bring their lives into conformity with the law of charity, the law of love and and then you know f- from there he would you know he would then send them out to do the same. so there's different ways we can sort of conceptualize this but I do think that 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 that, that message of mercy that strategy of mercy of is so critical to us especially today I call, Mercy and love is like the last man standing. There's there's no other credible witness in the world today right. except for authenticity.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, love is the final apologetic, I would say, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. Um, something I've heard come up, and actually I've, I experienced it in my own life, and that's one reason I'm so conscious of it. It seems the older you get... <clears throat> the less room you have for uh, new relationships. Uh, you might think that, well, my children are now grown and out of the house. But they have. But then you have grandchildren, and they happily take up time. They're wonderful to be with. Um, but I've noticed that as people get older, it isn't as though they necessarily have more time on their hands to establish new relationships with people Um, I think that's all that's a problem We, we aren't we don't organize our life so that there's room to take new people into our circle what do you how do you address that yeah um, I've often spoke
5: about this in parishes and I, what I say is when I describe what it is to disciple another person I say we cannot do this for everyone we know or meet Right. but we can do it for someone and if, if everyone in the church, if the whole body of Christ was fully operational and everyone was discipling a person or two we would cover an enormous amount of ground. And sure. in fact, that's how the early church grew. I don't know if you're familiar with Rodney Stark's great work on the rise yes. of Christianity. yep, yeah. I like him. He shows that the exponential growth of the church by person to person, neighbor to neighbor, so I don't think it's a question of going out and trying to fill your life with all sorts of, it's, it's your neighbor across, you know, talking over the fence to your neighbor or the people you work with. The people you naturally encounter in your day-to-day life and, you know, deciding I'm going to be a kind, this kind of a person to this other person that I know and I see on a regular basis because i that's all I can be responsible for. I can't try to think about the thousands of people out there right. that I need to be reached. Right, right. I'll, um, I'll be paralyzed.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, uh, something else that I've found helpful is to live in expectation that the Holy Spirit is already at work uh, in people's lives long before you ever show up on the scene. There's already mm-hmm. some kind of inner uh, uh, dialogue at a conscious or subconscious level that a person is having uh, with God or, or their idea of the ultimate or you know, whatever their highest values are. So you're not really starting from scratch when you meet people. Um, uh, The Holy Spirit's already in some way been active there. Do you account for that? Yes, I I think that's absolutely right. I think that the right mindset to
5: have is that is that the Lord will put people in front of our paths who he has already prepared for us to be the instrument of his mercy to them. So he wants our cooperation so i don't think we have to impose ourselves in any way and when we encounter resistance in other people that's usually a good sign that this is not a good field to cultivate right now right, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, except for perhaps a kind a kind word but but i i think that i have found that uh the more i am open and docile to responding to those whom the spirit places in across my path it's amazing yep. what conversations will come up in my life or, with people that are sometimes strangers, sometimes not people I've known for a long time, but for some reason on this particular day, a conversation commences. And um, so I think a lot of it is just being docile to the Spirit and being led by the Spirit in that rather than being uh, kind of like, you know, the, the, the willful, striving evangelist who's going to go out there and conquer the world for Christ. I think... Christ has already conquered the world. He just wants to include us in His work. So if we, if we are discerning, the Spirit will lead us to those people, or lead those people to us.
4: Let me ask you about some of the institutional issues that might arise here. Um, Evangelization in the Modern World by Pope Paul VI is a great, is a great document. Um, I'm, not a way, I'm not sure how uh, familiar uh the bishops and priests are with it because it's a, it's been a while ago uh, do you find that there are institutional impediments to strong l- lay leaders who want to do this work of evangelism and discipleship or do you find most priests and bishops just glad to have you know people there on the, doing it
5: yeah that's um How would I respond to that? I would say that generally speaking, the the clergy I know are all on board with the new evangelization. Mm -hmm. I think what the hesitancy is, is they don't exactly know what it means on a practical level. Mm -hmm. And so there are some reservations about how some people propose that should be done. And in some cases, I would agree with them. That's probably not the best way. And in other cases, I think it's a question of of there being more open and maybe uh, spending a little bit more time in the documents of the church and some of the great literature that's out there today on evangelization and and um, yielding to those, those, those ideas and those creative, innovative ways of trying to change parish life. Um, sometimes I find that clergy are resistant only because they're so busy already, they don't know yeah. how they're going to fit another thing in. Yeah. And so what I tend yeah. to say to them is, it's what, what, what you need to do is you need to rethink your whole situation and say, how can I realign and calibrate everything I'm doing at the parish to create a culture of missionary discipleship in my parish so that I need to let go of some things that are not bearing
4: fruit anymore so I can make room for the things that are. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, make That makes sense uh, in, my, in terms of my experience as well. Um, so... To, to, let's go back to uh, precisely uh, what you're uh, launching with the uh, Perambula Group. Are you working outside the field of uh, Diocese of Pittsburgh now, or are you still largely focused there?
5: Well, I, you know, for now my base is here. So, but we are the formation program I'm I'm, I'm rolling out is going to be available in person, which will be for people in Pittsburgh but also through on, an online platform, mm-hmm. and, um, and I will, you know, open up more and more spaces for people as I go. Um, so there's, there's three programs, one's called Discipleship Forum, which is kind of like, for those who want to really explore what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but how does, how does my life change if I decide to
8: follow Him? Mm-hmm.
5: The second program is called On Fire, which is kind of a—it's—it's a, it's really a deep dive into the spiritual and material life, and also the discovery of one's gift, gifts, gifts mm-hmm. as a member of Christ's body. And the third is called Missionary Catholic, which is really a, a residency program for people who want to be out in the mission field but want to do that in a community of practice where they can come back and experience. And, and talk about their experience and continue learning how to become more fruitful in the mission field so you know it's 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 intensive formation for people and so the cohorts are not large but as I grow I definitely you know want to open up more and more space for more and more people and mm-hmm. especially in those online cohorts eventually it would be great to transplant some of these programs to other dioceses and that's
4: definitely the plan
5: Yeah, but it yeah. will probably take a, a year or so before I can start doing that
4: yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. Um, let me go back to one of the most basic questions: What do you think are the leading? Uh, we've touched on this some of this already, but I want to restate it. What do you think are the principal impediments to people sharing their faith in Christ?
5: Well, I. Uh, I would tick off a couple of things. One is they have a misperception of what evangelization is. So they think it's proselytizing or telling mm-hmm. other people how they should think and be a conscience, their conscience for them. Mm-hmm. And that's not what it is. Right. Uh, and so people have to understand what it is, I think, first. Secondly, I think in our environment of tolerance and, and uh, fear of, of coming off as judgmental, Mm -hmm. I think people hesitate to breach the topic of religion because it's kind of, like, taboo. Um, And then, but I think probably third and most important is that people are not sufficiently in touch with how God is working in their own life. So they, they don't, like, they tend to focus on the external practices of their faith rather than the experience of the interior life. And the more people understand how grace moves in their own soul through the ups and downs of daily life, and especially where people find their wounds and their, their own suffering, that becomes the bridge. That's where we can connect with other people is by sharing what I call our God stories and help opening up a horizon to people that maybe they had never considered before. That is, God is showing up in your life, and he really wants to do something beautiful in it. Yeah. How do people, stay
9: in, yeah,
4: in How do people yeah. stay in touch with them, you? How do people stay in touch with Michael? Yeah,
5: reach out to me at preambula.org.
4: Pre- preambula.org, and uh, we'll have that listed at our site as well and linked there. We'll talk again, Michael. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Al. God bless you.
1: Support for the Save Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1.
0: They're showing reverence to God.
6: All this was
0: reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in
4: general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church.
0: No class. Absolutely no class.
3: EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic.
1: Maybe you've
4: been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you.
2: Thanks for joining us in our first hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to avemariaradio.net you can follow up on those conversations that we had and check out other things. We've got the Cresta Guest Archives archives for all of the other programs that we produce including More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchuk and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. We also have our uh, articles there about some of the things in the news. There's a uh, interesting story that EWTN's covering right now about Cardinal Fernandez. We'll have a, a story on that in our featured article section at the website AveMariaRadio.net. More to come in the next hour. Dr. Greg Popduck joining us to just talk more uh, social science apologetics and how religion impacts child development. And then we've got a, a rather d- dramatic conversion story to share with you. A daring rescue led me to Mary... And she brought me to Jesus. Uh, Darren Geist's journey to baptism began with a plunge into the water, but it was not one that he planned. He was awakened one night from his sleep by a crash and found a car had plunged into a canal near his home. As he dove into the water, a moment stretched into eternity, and after he emerged, he began to reconsider everything he believed. Soon felt a call from Mary that as a borderline atheist, he could not begin to understand he shares his story with us in the next hour as we continue a Cresta in the afternoon. More to come after this break.
1: From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
2: Good afternoon once again and welcome to another hour as we kick off this Monday of Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, As you can tell, this is not Al. I mentioned in the first hour, this is uh, Brian Shanley, Al's producer. Uh, Al was starting to come down with a bit of a cold late last week, which has uh, now developed into more of a chest cold. And uh, it's just that that kind of time of year when everybody gets that kind of illnesses. Uh, Say a prayer for him, and Lord willing, he'll be back later this week. More to talk about as we continue this edition of Crest in the Afternoon. If you missed our first hour, we had a great time talking with uh, Michael Therion about making effective evangelization and explaining the Catholic faith to those who have rejected it. You can find that, of course, in our CREST Guest archives. And we kick off this hour with uh, looking back on our, our old series, Social Science Apologetics. This is something that we've done regularly with Dr. Greg Popchuk in the past, looking at different studies that showed that living by a Catholic way of life leads to greater human flourishing. And in this segment, we uh, look at a study from the University of Texas San Antonio that suggests that growing up in a religious household can actually be a bit of a mixed blessing. Kids that grow up in religious families tend to have great social and psychological skills, but they may perform less well academically. So uh, why would that be? We're going to talk with Greg in this hour. In the first segment, you know Greg as the host of Mortal Life with his wife Lisa, author of a couple of dozen books now, and they are also the creators of the uh, Greg Catholic Home app. We'll have all of that linked for them in the Crest Digest archives. And then uh, later on in this hour, we hear a testimony, and uh, Darren Geist says that a daring rescue led me to Mary, and she brought me to Jesus. Uh, Darren Geist, who is a lecturer at Princeton University and a practicing attorney, and the uh, parent of three children, along with his wife, Lauren. And his journey to baptism began with a plunge into the water, and it was not a plunge that he ever saw coming. He was awakened late one night by a crash, found a car had plunged into a canal near his home, and as he dove into the water and moments stretched into eternity, he emerged and began to reconsider everything he had once believed. He soon felt a call from Mary that, as a borderline atheist, he couldn't begin to understand. Darren joining us later in this hour to share that story after we talk with Greg Popcheck, but we can't do any of that until after we get this news break with Dan McGraw.
3: Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 8th. It's the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Pope Francis is calling for a ban on surrogacy. In prepared remarks today, he described the practice of surrogate motherhood as deplorable. He said a child should not be turned into an object of trafficking and that he considers the practice a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child. Over 40 states are under wind, snow, blizzard, or flood alerts as winter storms move across the country. Nine states in the plains and the west are under blizzard warnings today. Tonight into tomorrow, the snow will start to impact Chicago, Milwaukee, and Wisconsin. Former President Trump is seeking to have his Georgia election subversion case dismissed. Trump's legal team today asked the Fulton County judge to toss the case, arguing Trump's protected from persecution under presidential immunity. They say Trump was working in his official capacity as president when he allegedly tried to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. And a new college football national champion will be crowned in Houston tonight. The Michigan Wolverines are set to face the Washington Huskies in the college football playoff national championship game at NRG Stadium. Michigan enters fresh off a 27-20 takedown of Alabama on the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day, and Washington is coming off a 37-31 victory over Texas in the Sugar Bowl. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw.
4: And good afternoon, I'm Al Presta. We continue our feature called Social Science Apologetics, where we take a look at what we learn from the social sciences about uh, the Catholic way of life. And with me is Dr. Gregory Popcheck, Executive Director of the Pastoral Solutions Institute. He's the author of more than a dozen books, and he and his wife, Lisa, co-host, More to Life on Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. You can follow Greg at CatholicCounselors.com. Good to have you, Greg, thanks. Great to be here, Al. Thank you. I uh, understand there's a new study from the University of Texas at San Antonio that uh, takes a look at, quote, religion and its impact on child development. And then whenever I hear the word religion, I always want to ask, are we talking about good religion or bad religion? They were just
6: interested in religious practice, basically. Uh, they were wondering um, the the effect that... Uh, of of parents' religiosity on the development of kids' well-being in general. So they were looking at three different areas, psychological development, social development, and then academic development. How does parents' religiosity, parents' religious practice, impact those three uh, traits in childhood development?
4: And what constitutes religiosity? What are they looking at? How do they measure that this is a religious parent?
6: Uh, essentially church attendance that's sort of the 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 the, the, the big standard but gotcha. but they yeah but, the, but they also do look at uh, other factors so for example how uh, you know so there are a bunch of different uh, standardized tests for example that, that investigate you know religiosity or, or the how uh, religious attitudes affect political affiliation that kind of thing
4: yeah okay um so there's, there's so there's a very sta- fairly standard definition of religiosity then that's right, yeah, yeah. and this study too
6: uh, by the way it, it, it was a fairly significant study um it it looked at uh the data from uh the, there's a there's a big sociological data set called the early childhood longitudinal study right it, uh, made up of about twenty two thousand kids. Uh, they started taking data on them from 1999, so this is a 20-year longitudinal study that looked at about 11,000 kids in
4: right. total. Right. Okay. Well, what uh,
6: what did they find? Well, it's interesting. It was sort of a mixed bag. What they found were there very, uh, very strong positive influence between parents' religiosity and uh, kids' development psychologically and socially. That that they really did find that that the more involved parents were with the faith. Uh, the more psychologically and socially well-developed their children tended to be. Academically, though, uh, it, it tended to find that, that religiosity, parents' religiosity was negatively associated with academic um, achievement in math and science, specifically. Why would that be? Well, you know, it's hard to say exactly because they they weren't able to break it down into different faiths. Uh, so, so they weren't able to say whether, and they specifically acknowledge this, that you know, if if, if Catholics or Protestants or Jews or Muslims or Hindus would have different, uh, you know, different results with this. You know, I, they argue that the main focus of parenting for a religious parent is moral and character formation, right. not necessarily intellectual formation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they, were, they, they want to do further research to see if different faiths uh, value intellectual formation more than others. But in general, uh, their experience uh, in, from the data suggests that religiosity uh, is more concerned with psychological and social achievement than it is with academic achievement.
4: Yeah, um so an emphasis upon learning a, a a way of life or a moral code or the treatment of others is somehow is that is that is that become is that such a is that prioritized in such a way that it diminishes interest in academic uh pursuits that's what I <laughs> I'm trying to I think out what it can that, be how that well, I and mean, I mean well, and I think that the two,
6: you know, for example, certain um, certain fundamentalist Christian groups, for example, would be uh, specifically hostile to scientific uh, studies. For example, uh, some 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 religions uh, favor creationism, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, those sorts of things, or uh, have a tendency to, uh, you know, underestimate how, the importance of science. I, I don't think I, I think that if they were able to break this down, they would not find this. I would guess uh, with with Catholic because, of course, Catholics uh, see, as Thomas Aquinas put it, two books of Revelation, right. uh, the, the book of Scripture and, and the book of nature, uh, and that God's, God's fingerprints are all over both and that the truth doesn't contra- contradict itself. Yeah. Um, and so because of the kind of Catholic intellectual history, I, I think that by and large, Faithful Catholics do uh, value both so- psychosocial development of kids and intellectual development. This study was not able to identify those differences between religions, though.
4: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I even it's it's very interesting because even within that fundamentalist group, the scientific creationist communities associated with Answers in Genesis and the mm-hmm. Institute for Creation Research, they even maintain though that that same two book approach to revelation. Um, it's just they be- don't believe that mainstream science is authentically scientific, so they try to come up with an alternate scientific reading of things. But I I am interested in this whole question from your own experience. Do you think there is something about pre when you prioritize uh, moral codes, and so you're trying to instill values like self-control, mm-hmm. social competence, uh, caring for others, showing respect does that just put the emphasis I mean, how many things can a person prioritize so I think that that's a fair point I mean
6: you know that that, that you know when you're you only have so much energy to give right and so I, th- I think that a lot of parents you know given if they felt like they had to make a choice between uh, you know, having a, uh, a raising a child with good character who is able to be, you know, generous and loving to others versus a kid who could score well on math tests. I yeah. think that most most Christian parents would choose, uh, you know, the, the former rather than the latter. That's not to say that there's anything bad about academic achievement, right? But right. But, but they make the point. It's inter- they used interesting language. They talked about how religion uh, make tends to encourage parents to have a covenantal view of family relationship. In other words. Uh, a, a rela- to really prioritize the the value of relationship and see the spiritual dimension of the parent child relationship, and so that's that that was their argument for why parents would invest more energy in the psychosocial development of their kids as opposed to the academic development, because they see uh, less spiritual benefit to be gained from academic achievement than they do from the psychosocial development. So, uh,
4: so would that. So would academic achievement, then, tend to bring the child away from the community of faith or the, the community circles that they're comfortable with? In other words, it individuates them outside the, the, uh, the covenantal community. So they, are, they're getting, they end up getting their rewards and their applause from another, another community. Is that part of this? I think it could be. I don't think it necessarily has
6: to be that. I mean, I certainly there there are plenty of people uh who are faithful who are high academic achievers right. as well. Oh yeah. You know, so it doesn't necessarily have to bear that fruit, but I think that it, that that could be maybe a concern that a you know, kind of too individualistic of an approach to things would somehow uh take away from uh you know the 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 psychosocial benefits from a religious upbringing.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um
6: the other interesting thing yeah, in the ahead. study, is, sorry, is is that they talked about um, the the negative effect of spousal conflict over religion. Um, that that in fact, uh, that that conflict over religion was actually more detrimental to kids than just spousal conflict in general. Um, that that the, the study found that uh, when when parents fought about religious issues. Uh, there tended to be a greater negative effect on the psychosocial development of the kids and their academic functioning than if parents were just having arguments about other things. That makes sense to me. Yeah, me too.
4: Yeah, because I mean, because there you have the parents arguing over the the fundamental way of life or the fundamental worldview or the fundamental values, the things that you try to develop fundamental trust in, right? And if the, yeah, I mean that's the way it strikes me. If the parents are arguing about those things which are supposed to be certain, uh, you know, you can argue about uh, who who banged up the car. Or you can ang- argue about money, but when you're arguing about God, good heavens!
6: <laughs> well, and you know, one of the other things too that that we find in, in our practice um, is that arguments about religion are very rarely actually about religion (laughs) that's a Um, good point yeah well and and what it really often comes down to is an attitude of uh, or a failure of respect in the relationship overall you know because when you respect somebody you you, it's not just that you're nice to them it's that you try to find the truth and the goodness and the beauty and the things they find true good and beautiful right so even if you don't see eye to eye you have an open mind and you say you know i love this person and clearly you know they're not an idiot so if they find something good about this there's probably something good about it i want to find out that too and so even if you don't share a faith with your spouse, but you have respect for them, you're able to kind of work through that and say, well, you you tell me why this is important to you and let me find ways that I can share in this as much as possible so you're able to come together on that. But where you don't have that uh, respect, what tends to happen is that you have one spouse who caves in uh, with with all the other areas of their relationship where where the spouses don't see eye to eye except on religion because that's really core to who I am. So then all the fights get loaded onto that if that makes sense. So so you know I I might be willing to defer to you if you're if you're sort of the angry spouse about you know what I wear or how often I go out with my friends or how I relate to my family. But I'm not going to I'm not going to compromise my church attendance for instance and now we're going to have a fight, right? So because of that lack of respect, uh, it, it all gets loaded on the on the whole religious issue thing and and then that creates an even bigger uh, problem dynamic in the household, so it's not just even that we're fighting about those core beliefs, which is absolutely true, but we're also modeling to our kids a really disrespectful way of being with each other,
4: Mm, That's
6: good. which creates a lot of tension on all those different levels, so of course you're going to see poorer academic uh, as as well as psychosocial performance in those couples who are really having open conflict about about religious issues.
4: Um, Do we have any studies that indicate that some religious groups um, have a a different balance in the way they look at uh, what are sometimes called the soft skills of uh, you know, tr- treating others, uh, living up to moral commitments, uh, it, the balance between developing in those areas versus developing uh, in specialized areas of academic life. You know, I'm I'm not as
6: aware of research on that. In fact, I was reading through the literature review in this study that was published in the journal *Religions*, um, which is a sociology journal, uh, before the, the show. and And they were specifically saying that that's one area where they needed to be more research done. That, that that when sociologists and psychologists study religion, they tend to study it as you know as a as a as a whole, as opposed to seeing which particular religious differences impact kids and or people in these particular ways i think you know part of that is is uh, it's 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 politically touchy but but beyond that i mean there, there just hasn't been enough research to uh uh to, to be able to validate you know different religious uh, attitudes and the effect that those have on on particular families
4: very good greg thanks how do people stay in touch with you catholiccounselors.com
6: thank you so much
4: Dr. Gregory Popchek, again, CatholicCounselors.com. We'll have, again, follow-up information available for you at AveMariaRadio.net in the Cresta Guest Archive. As, uh, again, doing our continuing our uh, Social Science Apologetics feature, I'm Al Cresta.
2: Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know Lord. Quick question to you and me right now, is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish, or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data, We got tons of data, not a lack of information. We got a lot of information, not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God, but not a lot of intimacy with God, not a lot of relationship with God, not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship, and we're not taking advantage of it.
7: It's
6: time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk conflict is an inevitable part of family life but how we handle disagreements can make a big difference when the temperature starts heating up try pausing long enough to do two things first say a quick prayer either silently or if you can out loud with the person that you're having conflict with ask God to strengthen you with the help you need to resolve the conflict in a respectful and loving way second take a moment to reframe the disagreement instead of viewing it as a battle to be won. Think of it as an opportunity to grow and strengthen your relationship. The goal in any conflict isn't to decide who's right or wrong, but to understand each other better and find common ground. To learn more about handling family conflicts gracefully, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Man. To discover
7: more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com
8: the wisdom of mother angelica i want you to have such confidence in the lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the lord the majesty of god what did lord say huh
4: if your sins are as scarlet oh what
8: what's gonna happen They shall be made white as
5: snow.
4: EWTN,
3: live truth, live Catholic.
6: Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you.
2: You can protect yourself and your family. It only takes a few minutes to set up and provide assurance. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35%
7: of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com.
0: We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all healthcare options are equally pro-life and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF
10: Curo at mycatholichealthcare.com. That's mycatholichealthcare.com. Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima following all the steps of the Little Shepherds, Santiago de Compostela, The ending point for the El Camino is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it.
0: To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio Travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net.
4: Good afternoon. I'm Al Creston. My guest, Darren Geist, is a lecturer at Princeton University, also a practicing attorney. He and his wife, Lauren, are the parents of three children. And Darren has a spiritual journey to baptism that begins with a plunge into the water. Darren, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Tell us about uh, being woken up in the middle of the night by strange sounds.
12: Yeah, so maybe where the story should really start is that, you know, I wasn't actually supposed to be home that night. Okay. So I was supposed to be on a work trip um, in Canada, and my flight got canceled the last second. So the fact that I was even home was a surprise. And I was, it was just like a normal day. You know, it was rainy, bad weather, and um, I went to bed with my wife, and, you know, first we got woken up by this really odd sound, and, and we've lived there for, you know, four or five years, and we never heard heard a sound like that before, and... I went downstairs to look around and didn't see anything. I went back upstairs, and then we heard this sound that clearly sounded like a crash. And I remember turning to my wife and I said, now that's a crash. Wow. And we rushed downstairs, um, it, we looked outside, we didn't see any lights, pitch dark. I mean, there's not many houses um, around where I live, and there's not any street lights. It's right by a canal mm-hmm. where there's a bridge. My wife fortunately said, well, why don't we just check outside just in case? So I go outside, and I hear this weird sound outside. It kind of sounded like a voice, but it was was just strange. And so I started walking towards, well, really running towards the canal to try to figure out what it was. Uh, As I'm getting closer, it sounds more like a human voice in distress, like screaming and yelling, but I still can't tell where it's coming from. Um, I get over the bridge, I still can't see anything, it's it's very dark, I look into the water, I don't see anything. It's only until after I cross the bridge and I see that the guardrail is completely smashed, and I go a little over that I can see a car completely under the bridge. Um, There's just some of its headlights on, or the light in the back of the seat, and that's when I really can tell, there's someone in there screaming and banging on the windows. You know. And it's this moment that you know, when you're there, it just stretches to eternity. You're, you don't know how to react, what to do. And my wife afterward told me, like, like I in a panicked voice told her just to call nine one one. And the next thing, you know, I was trying to yell to him, but I could tell he couldn't get out. And so I climbed over the edge of the bridge, and then I jumped into the water.
11: Mm.
0: Wow.
12: Um, I swam over to the car. And it was clear, I mean, there's probably, i would say maybe a foot, maybe two feet of the car still above the water. So it was, most of it was submerged. Um, I tried um, the back door where I could tell that he he was, so I couldn't see him, um, and it wouldn't budge. And, it's, it's again, it's one of those moments where it's like, he's going to die right in front of me. Right in
4: front of you, yes.
12: Yeah, you know, And then, I fortunately, I move over to the front seat, and then... You know, thank God the door was able to open. Oh. So I remember I started banging on the window, just saying the door is open, the door is open. And then I held the door open and reached in, and I was able to feel his arm and um, pull him out of the oh. car. Wow! Um, and so we we're, you know, we were just you know embracing in the water, and you know we started heading over to the side of the canal. And by then the car was completely underwater.
4: How, how yeah, so deep was the water back. there? How, how deep was the water there?
12: So it really, it's not super deep it's probably and we had a lot of rain but it was probably like seven feet or so yeah it was enough that like i could go down a little and push off um but when i was actually at where the car was
4: you know i couldn't feel the bottom yeah okay yeah you know, and,
12: so and so it's deep it's deep, it's deep
4: enough it. to drown in <laughs> yeah 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 uh, and well yeah you know, we saw
12: the car was completely under wow
4: and, and, and um, I have to ask, what happened to the, the person you pulled out? Uh, Turned out all right? Or?
12: Yeah, amazingly, he wasn't injured. It's one of those things, you know, when I look back at it, I look back and it's like, what was that weird sound that woke us up <laughs> you know, that enabled us to get out there in time? You know, yeah. so that I could hear him. You know, what, why was my flight canceled? You know, and then also, how was he not knocked unconscious? When his car, you know, smashes through a guardrail, has to do a 180, ends up under a bridge, like against one of the pillars, yeah. And he was awake, so that he could call out, so that I could hear him. It just seemed like all these things that unlikely things that had happened that enabled me to be, get there in time. And then, how did I get the door open? And, yeah. You know, that itself was weird. It's like I can I've read a lot about it now. You know, as you replay it in your mind, I bet. But it's just one of those things where it's like. Felt and you know, I suddenly believed that I was aided in
4: it. Yes, um, so uh, this fellow survives. You uh are asking yourself how, all these remarkable uh circumstances conspiring together uh to bring about this outcome. Uh, did you you were not at the time, I mean, you're not a believer at the time, right? You, you, no. Yeah, underline I mean, atheist. Yeah, and I, I had
12: briefly become Christian of the evangelical sort. I yeah. had left that community because I just didn't find it theology compelling, and I had problems with some of their teachings. And then for a long time, I was just agnostic. You know, sometimes atheist, but always hopeful. So I was always I wanted to believe. Yeah. I just didn't.
8: Gotcha. Um, and
12: my wife. Is Catholic, um, but she never sort of pressured me on the faith. Uh I know she always hoped that I would join, but it was not something that she pushed on me. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so after this crash, you know, I was just dealing with a lot of honestly just trauma. You know, I had a hard time driving, and you know, I had a hard time being in the car or being, you know, going out into the water late at night and just looking at what had happened. And so we had this great priest who had married us, had brought my wife to the church, had brought our children, had baptized our children, um, and so I asked to have him over just because I was processing a lot of things.
4: Yeah.
12: You know, and we had a great conversation, but but honestly, the interesting thing is that after that conversation, it wasn't like, I was like, okay, I want to believe, or, mm-hmm. I wanna, or I believe now. Right. Really, there was this period where I was like, you know what, it was great, it was helpful, I'm working through these issues, but I don't think... I believe i don't think faith is right for me mm-hmm. and that where was when it sort of i mean to me it was like completely out of the blue i just felt this unexplainable and irresistible call from mary and it was so out of the blue because i had no knowledge of who mary was right i wasn't raised with any exposure to her my experience with Christianity didn't really expose me to her, and and honestly, as my wife would say, you know, th- she, she's a Catholic convert, and Marian devotion was a thing she struggled with. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was a big part of household life. <laughs> but no. it was one of these things where I knew there was a call, and I knew it was from Mary, and I can't explain why I know any of those things, <laughs> and that really set me wow. on this journey of just trying to figure out who she was. Trying to understand church teaching, trying to figure out whether I believe in God at all, yeah, yeah, and all those things just sort of converged as I de- dove into scripture into the catechism and and just trying to figure out what was going on, and finding the that the church had those answers was just amazing
4: so this this sense of her call this prompting um this your sense that um, there's a, a voice beckoning you forward was is that like um, you know did it stick with you like uh, like the call of conscience?
12: Yeah, no, that's the only way I can sort of when I when like my 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 family who you know on, on my side who are not religious when yeah. they ask me about it. Yeah, that's the only way I can explain it. It's like, you yeah. feel this tug of the conscience, you know? Yeah. And certainly now, as a Catholic, you know, I love this line from St. John Henry Newman saying you know, that the conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. It's always been the call of Christ. Yeah, And it was sort of, that's what I felt. It was something that just broke through all the noise and all the chaos, and it was just so clear that I was receiving something. Yeah. You know, and that it was true. And for me, I'm I'm a skeptic, I'm a researcher, I was trying to figure out, like, how can this be true? Like, what can explain this? And that's where it was so important to dive into the rich, you know, tradition and theology of the Church. And say, no, there actually is an explanation. There actually a reason why something like this could happen to me, as undeserving of it as I am. Mm -hmm. But there's an explanation, and it makes sense, and it fits in with, you know, 2,000 years of teaching.
4: Right, right.
12: Uh, And so that was so reassuring and beautiful for me.
4: Yes, so I mean, you've got this phenomenon now in your own soul, uh, and you've got to somehow explain it. I mean, what is what is this thing yeah. that I'm dealing with? I assume that's it's kind of your empirically. Uh, you've got a loose end here. You got an anomaly. It doesn't fit, and you've got to find. I suppose how what kind of worldview allows it to fit?
12: Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. one of those things where it's. It's like, either I'm going crazy, or I'm finding something true. You know, <laughs> right. A great dilemma of, you know, C.S. Lewis regarding, you know, understanding Jesus, and whether he's a madman, you know, a lunatic, or yeah. actually the Son of God. Right. It seem, it's seems like either I'm going completely bonkers because of this this thing I'm feeling, and, and these, you know, this insight one could say that I'm getting, yeah. and what's happening to me, or I'm actually tapping into something true. And it seemed the latter explanation made the most sense to me, both emotionally and then intellectually as well.
4: You've written that in the months before the crash, you'd been listening to Jordan Peterson's lecture series on the psychology of the Bible, and he had observed that Michelangelo's Pieta represents a fulfillment of the Abrahamic sacrifice. Do you want to elaborate a bit on that?
12: Yeah, it was actually one of these things where, ironically, Jordan Peterson really helped prime me, I think, becoming Catholic, yeah. as I listened to him and and ha- the way he read the Bible and sort of understood traditions, and the way I sort of understood him coming short of sort of where he needed to be, mm-hmm. like sort of understanding the fullness of, of truth and beauty, that there was a, a step he wasn't willing to take. And this was one example of that, where when he talked about this idea of um, the Abrahamic sacrifice, he was talking in the sense that, Every parent, in a sense, makes this choice. You know, you make a choice. Do you raise your kids to be devoted to and committed to the highest good, even if it comes at a cost? Mm -hmm. So even if you're you're Catholic or or not, or, or you're Jewish or whatever, you have that choice to make. And he said that the purest representation of this was really Mary in many ways. But she had made that choice to bring her son to the world, and then we had the knowledge that your heart would be pierced and you had to see him undergo you know the intense agony and suffering but she stayed faithful and that she was the fulfillment of this idea of of sacrifice of, of sacrifice to your own child for the greatest good mm. and that just really resonated with me both in terms of understanding how much she loved jesus how much she gave up for us and just her role in you know, eventually, I, I would
4: understand the Christian, the Christian Catholic faith. Yes. So, also look at what he's done for you. Um, hold it there, if you would. Uh, we'll be back, Darren, on the other side of the break. Continue conversation, Darren Geist, my guest. His conversion to the Catholic faith for the love of Mary.
3: Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization: Real Estate for Life buying or selling your home or business property real estate for life can connect you with one of 1400 pro-life real estate agents around the world when real estate for life receives a referral fee they donate 70 percent to ave maria radio and human life international more information at realestateforlife.org or 877 life us1 that's realestateforlife.org
0: would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot
8: Connection with Teresa
11: Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's, it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. And what came out of that? Our salvation. Catholic Connections,
8: Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Do you know the origin of the rainbow? According to the Catholic Catechism, the first rainbow occurred after the flood when God established a covenant with Noah and his descendants. The rainbow was God's pictorial reminder to both God and man. God tells Noah in Genesis, This is the sign I am giving for all ages to come of the covenant between me and you and every living creature with you. I set my bow in the clouds to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will recall the covenant I have made between me and you and all living beings, so that the waters will never again be a flood to destroy all mortal beings. Little wonder a vivid valentine from our Creator so excites our eyes this is peggy stanton and this has been the order of malta's minute with the catechism
4: good afternoon i'm al cresta with me darren geist sharing with us his story of coming into full communion with the catholic church moving from kind of an agnostic borderline atheist position but experiencing a strange and mysterious call prompting sensibility from uh, mary uh, he recognized and we're talking about how he discerned um, that call and then what it led up to so when you start to understand that she's I, – I, again, I, I assume this from your, your um, story – that you're asking not only what is this, but what is she trying to convey to me, what she's trying to show me, um, does that – do you begin to adopt uh, a devotion uh, to Mary at that point?
12: Yeah, so, you know, the first question for me was just, you know, who is Mary? It's one of those things where, you know, for Catholics, it's so obvious who she is. You know, at least you always hear about her. But for me, it was like, okay, so Mother to Jesus. But I didn't know anything else about sort of why she was important to the Catholic faith. I didn't understand any of the dogmas about her, and the doctrines. So I was just trying to figure that out and try to understand that part of what the t- the Church taught about her. And then, through that i was also starting to try to have some devotion to her on what that would look like so this, for the first time really i started trying to pray the hail mary mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying to pray to her and and sort of dealing that out and i should say that you know uh, and this is something i didn't um write about in the the piece you know i had one of the early signs that i had a hard time explaining that was important for reassuring my faith was that I was I was dealing with some health issue. I don't go into it, and I just felt moved to say a prayer to Mary. Yes, mm-hmm. and and then, crazily, the next day it completely resolved itself <laughs> Wow! And the, the the craziest part of it was that after I had come back and talked to my wife about it, and I was like, something totally crazy happened. I don't understand, and she was like. For the, she explained that for the first time in her life, she had been moved to to light a candle for Mary and say a prayer for me in my journey, huh. sort of to give me some assurance that this was the right path. Uh-huh. And so this weird sort of confluence of both reaching out for her intercession at the same time, and then getting this reassurance yes. was just incredible. Of saying that yes, this is the right path. This is a devotion that I need to undertake, and that this is the correct journey of trying to figure out who she is, and what she wants from me, and what she's trying to, to teach me. And, you know, it was just, it was one of those things where I still, you know, my skeptical mind looks back and it's like, oh, come on, that doesn't make sense.
4: Right, and that's what I was going to
12: say. I can't find any other explanation.
4: So you've got this absurd situation that you're in, where you've got this developing respect love for mary uh but you remain i mean she's the mother of god and yet you're skeptical about the existence of god how long does does, does that ever resolve
12: so i mean it resolves over time you know and one of the things i love about catholicism i've learned about is knowing that it is this long journey you know it's not it's not easy it's not Always smooth ride. It's bumpy. It's full of doubts. It's full of wrestling. But it's this journey, and that, that I could undertake. If it was expected that I had full faith right away, you know, it's like so. One of the things um, my wife always told me, and the priest, um, Father Dave, always told me, is that, that great prayer of, you know, Lord, I believe. Help me, unbelief. Yes, oh. and that's something so beautiful. This idea that yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I'm not sure, but I'm going to walk, and I'm going to act with my will, and I'm going to accept this as true. In spite like to fully believe in and live up to. And so that struggle remained, and, you know, I would approach friends about it. So I wrote about one of the friends I talked to about it, um, who I knew was always very interested in, in my faith or lack thereof. And I was just trying to explain to him, like, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't believe in God, yet I'm pretty sure Mary is the mother of God, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't fit. And it was great because he was explaining how even for... The church, this, that sort of struggle makes sense. Mm-hmm. That Mary is the mother of all of us as Christians as believers, and that's you know straight from Scripture, you know from Revelations and from John, and it makes sense that she is the one who brings us Christ, as she brought Christ to all of us. Yes, and so it makes sense that she brought, would bring Christ to me, and that she would be the one to awaken that love and that desire for Him. In me. And seeing that my journey again had an explanation—that it wasn't just this weird psychosis of mine, it was consistent with thousands of years of theology and truth and understanding—made me think again, like, "Wow, this is actually the right journey." Yeah. You know. And on that point, I'll just say that you know one of the most beautiful things, that the most important things, my journey was simply just reading the Catechism,
4: mm-hmm. you know,
12: and just sitting down and saying, "It's a, a, a realizing that." You know, we're all on this journey for truth, and a journey for figuring out what the answers to things are. And then when you read the Catechism, you realize, wow, for thousands of years, the Church has had the answer. And we, for some reason, have been so blind to not see it. Yeah. You know, and it's just amazing to... You know, it's, it's, one, it's so humbling to be encounter truth and to know it was there all along.
4: Right. Yes, and you are... Uh, what I love about the story, too, is you're dealing with uh, really experienced realities in, in your life. It's not a purely doctrinal quest. It's it's a quest to understand what's real and uh, the significance uh, of these moments. Just, um, in a Catholic faith, I agree with you. There's something very beautiful about its, its patience and its uh, expe- expectation that you are on a journey. And uh, this all doesn't happen uh, at once. Uh, you're always unfolding the grace that you've been given in baptism, and uh, it gets richer and deeper uh, as you go along. Uh, institutionally, how did this work? W- w- did you go to RCIA? Uh, did you need to be baptized? Uh, what happened?
12: Yeah, all of the above. Um, before I, I talk about that, I just want to say a word about patience. Yeah. Because one of the things that I found so beautiful in my journey was, you know, my wife is a you know, devout Catholic, mm-hmm. but she never pressured me, as I mentioned. Right. But she told me after I went through this, you know, this my own conversion, you know, she always thought I would become a Catholic eventually because I was committed to truth. Yeah. And I was always relentlessly trying to pursue it. She just thought it might take, you know, decades. And she was willing to wait and to carry that burden for our children of raising them Catholic. And they're so beautiful, and we're so grateful now that it sort of, you know God had a different timeline, and, yes. and now we can raise our children Catholic together. So mm-hmm. I just want to say that cause I think that patience that she showed
4: she so showed patience and so
12: moving in my life.
4: Yeah, yeah.
12: Institutionally, um, you know, I had, I got the, the the full range of sacraments. So I did RCIA. I also did a one on one RCIA outside of the church with a very dear friend, um, and then. When I got when I came into the church, I had to get baptized, first holy Communion, confirmation all of that mm-hmm. one of the things that was so beautiful though and this is it's one of it was like a silver lining from this you know whole um, difficulty during the pandemic so our our um, reception to the church got delayed initially scheduled for Easter and I got pushed back indefinitely, which was I know was difficult for me and and everyone else, but as a result of that um, I was able actually to get baptized at the same time as my daughter. So my daughter was born in May, mm-hmm. and everything was locked down. And so oh, then, yeah. um, my priest, Father D, reached out and he says, "Why don't I bring you both into the church together?" <laughs> and so on the Feast of Assumption, he baptized me, and then he baptized my daughter, and then I was confirmed, and then I got first Holy Communion. So beautiful. How fitting. And also, i yeah. add to that is yeah, and and I'll an add to that is that. Then my my marriage, my wife, our marriage became sacramental. So it was, you know, full range of sacraments and it was so beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, I'm just grateful.
4: That's that's that is beautiful. I'm I'm curious. Did, are you still in touch with the fellow whose life you saved?
12: So I haven't heard from him in a while. But when I before I was getting baptized, was going to get baptized, I did reach out to him and let him know um, about what was happening mm-hmm. because so. After um, after you know, the accident and, and everything, he did come and visit me and gave me a letter. And one of the things that he wrote in the letter, actually, was that he said he didn't know if I believed in God, but that he did, and he would be praying for me. Yeah. Um, nice. And so I wrote to him, you know, and just said, you know, those words always stuck with me, and amazingly, you know, now I do believe. Yeah. And... Somehow you know, we're bound together in this accident, and you know, like I said at the end of the article, you know, God used me to save him, and God used him to save me.
4: Yeah, yeah. Isn't that something? Well, um, well, this is uh, remark. It's a really remarkable and lovely story. Um, and so, you were received in uh, when was it this year?
12: This year, uh, the
4: Feast of the Assumption. Okay, okay, very good. So this year, Feast of the Assumption, and uh, of course it's been an odd year, I guess, uh, so you're, I imagine, uh, you, like most of us, your liturgical experience has been uh, hampered a bit by uh, the COVID-19 yeah, regulations, you know. Um, but I'll, I'll ask anyways, how are things going so far? You know, I mean,
12: it's, it's like everyone's journey. It, it comes sometimes it's great and sometimes you're struggling and you just have to force your way back into the ritual and mm-hmm. because you know, the ritual is for us you know yeah. it's there to feed us and feed us spiritually and obviously this is a time where you know we're it's harder to get our spiritual food so it, it's it's something where honestly it it comes and goes some days it's great some weeks and everything's fine and then you hit a roadblock right. and you just have to and I have to keep my eyes focused on on Christ, on Mary, and turning to her for her intercession, and and that's what I do. And knowing that you know, going to something we talked about earlier, this is it's a long journey, it's a long road, mm-hmm. and conversion is a lifelong process. Yeah, yeah.
4: Well, Darren, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful talking with you. And uh, I, I'm wondering, are you going to be doing any more writing on this? Uh, do you do a lot of writing? It's very, the article is very yeah, I is have, lovely. I have, yeah.
12: Thank you. Um, I do have several other um, pieces yeah, related to Mary and the other part of the Catholic faith that I'm working on, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully, will get published at some point.
4: Well, good. I'll um, look definitely... I'll look forward to seeing them. So, thank you so much for being with me Great. today. Thank you, Darren Geist. We'll have uh, this story. Uh, from First Things Magazine, It'll be available, of course, in the Crested Guest Archives. Um, it is, it is, yeah, it's unusual, and it, it's beautifully so. Um, well, I'll have more to say about it, maybe a little bit later, but it just stands so beautifully on its own when you see it.
11: Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
9: Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families.
6: Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
0: The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle.
9: In the fourth rule of the Fourteen Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, Saint Ignatius of Loyola describes spiritual desolation. Detailing an aspect of spiritual desolation, he writes, and as if separated from one's Creator and Lord. Father Timothy Gallagher explains this aspect. Ignatius is highlighting a fundamental characteristic of spiritual desolation. While it endures, any felt consciousness of God's loving presence is weakened or absent. And such persons feel as if they were separated from God. God is with us, despite the lack of feeling that He is with us. God is with us when we feel isolated, alone, and as if no one cares. Instead of continuing to allow the spiritual desolation to isolate us, the invitation is to open our hearts to communion with God's heart. What will be your prayer of communion with God today?
10: For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. back.
2: Good afternoon, and thanks again for joining us over the last two hours of this Monday edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, You can follow up on today's material by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Click on the Cresta Guest Archives, and you can uh, get a hold of uh, Dr. Greg and Lisa Patrick's books, many, many books available there. And also check out their uh, Catholic Home app. We'll also have more material from Darren Geist, as well as uh, Michael Therian, and you can look at the work he's doing at the Perambula Institute. And uh, we have more to come as we go off the air. Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls and uh, always looking to enrich our understanding of the Catholic faith so that, as we talked about with Michael, you can continue to pass it on to others. A uh, topic that we didn't get to today was with, uh, of course, it's the Feast of the baptism, the baptism of the Lord. And... Uh, Easy question that comes up is why would a sinless, perfect Jesus need to be baptized? And there's a great article at the National Catholic Register, which we'll have available for you, that addresses this. And he writes Jesus is sinless, but he came to save us sinners. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Even John knows, I need to be baptized to you, and you come to me. In submitting to John's baptism, which he doesn't need, Jesus declares his solidarity with us sinners. Jesus takes us to the bath of repentance. He does not need Jordan's water, Jordan's water is made holy by him upon whom it was poured. Jesus' baptism, therefore, manifests his intent to save us. It's also an extremely important Christological event, it's the opportunity for a theophany and divine manifestation. The baptism is an opportunity for one greater than John, God himself, to put his stamp of approval on Jesus' mission. Again, that's just a little clip of that article that we'll have available for you in the Cresta Guest Archives and on our Facebook page. Keep us in prayer, and Lord we'll be back tomorrow with more Cresta in the Afternoon. Until then, have a great evening, and God bless.
1: Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.